Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already, and please share widely with others as well. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today we are talking about food and sustainability, and particularly looking at food systems and the tools and frameworks used to assess food systems. So we're going to consider the hidden costs and also some of the positive impacts that are also hidden, that are often hidden from traditional accounting reports, which in turn go unaccounted in final price of food, in policy documents, in balance sheets. So think about things like habitat destruction, soil erosion, water contamination on the negative side. And on the positive side, things like carbon sequestration, insect pollination, resilience to natural disasters. Many of these things are simply not accounted for in most reports today. And we have two wonderful guests to shed light on this. We have Pavan Sukdev, who joins us from Switzerland, and he's wearing two hats today. He's the president of WWF International, so that's the uh, Worldwide Fund for Nature, and he's also the chief executive officer of GIST, GIST Impact. And we have Ruth Richardson joining us from Canada, and she is the executive director of the Global Alliance for the Future of Food. So we're going to look at this from a holistic perspective. We are literally about to kick off with COP26 in just a few days' time. So it's a, it's a conversation that's highly relevant to where we are today. Now, before we kick things off, I'd like to extend a heartfelt thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is an artificial intelligence powered consumer insights and market research platform. They currently work with approximately 100 clients, ranging from large corporates such as Coca-Cola, Unilever, and Visa, to technology companies such as Twitter and Amazon, and large philanthropic organizations such as the Gates Foundation, the World Bank, Girl Effect, the UN, and Children's Investment Fund Foundation. With 6 million data sources and hundreds of AI models, they're able to answer any consumer or beneficiary research problem across more than 90 countries. And in 2019, their mission-based technology approach led The Economist to calling them an AI for good company. So do check them out at quilt.ai. Without further ado, a big heartfelt welcome on to the Do One Better podcast. Pavan and Ruth, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you. So pleased to join. Thanks, Alberto. And hi, Ruth. Good to meet you again. Excellent. Well, it's, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. I always like to find out to start with a little bit about your organizations. And Ruth, why don't you tell us a little bit about the uh, Global Alliance for the Future of Food? Thanks, Alberto. So the Global Alliance for the Future of Food is a strategic alliance of philanthropic foundations. Currently, our membership sits at 31 foundations. Um, these foundations are all committed to food systems transformation. They don't necessarily see themselves as food systems funders. Many of them are climate funders or biodiversity funders or public health funders or farmers' rights funders. But what they recognize and are committed to is the fact that all of these critical issues are connected to food systems. Um, so we work actively as sort of a communications and advocacy platform on behalf of philanthropy at the global level, trying to push food systems transformation with the UN and with other global actors. Excellent, wonderful. And Pavan, so WWF International, it's a household name to, to, to many of us, and uh, just Impact. Give us a little bit of an overview of both of those organizations. Right, I guess WWF needs uh, no introduction, but uh, uh, it's an NGO that's committed to ensuring that nature and people thrive together. And uh, you'll be pleased to know that we have uh, 
through our focus on knowledge, recognize the importance of food systems as a key outcome area. And in fact, we have an entire community dedicated to food systems. It's the global practice group or global practice community on food systems. Um, it's absolutely central to our, our advocacy and our thinking around how we deliver uh, the future that the planet and people need. My, uh, my other half of my life is GIST. GIST Impact is a firm which has for the last 16 years been focused on delivering impact analysis, impact valuation. In fact, as far as possible, economically valued impact analysis for investors, for corporations and for projects. And among the projects that we have applied this approach to is of course a food project as might come up in our conversation today. Great, very, very useful. Thanks for the insight to both. Now, one thing I'd like to start off with is also uh, True Value, a report that uh, that uh, Ruth, your your team's come up with recently. I think they've just published it a few days ago. So True Value, revealing the positive impacts of food systems transformation. That presumably gives us a good overview to start the conversation today. Yeah, so Alberto, thank you for highlighting that because it's hot off the press. Um, and let me just back up slightly to answer your question, which is that um, the Global Alliance for um, almost a decade has worked on two specific projects. We have more than that, but related to this with this report, there are two projects. One is our work on true cost accounting, um, which we've worked on tirelessly with Pavan and others um, to try to create frameworks, to try to change the narrative around the metrics that are needed, to try to encourage policymakers, businesses, farmers, to take up these tools, that's one whole body of work. The other body of work is called Beacons of Hope, which identifies and highlights where positive food systems transformation is happening. And we have examples across sectors, across types of organizations. We have extremely large organic distributors, for instance, and very smallholder farmer initiatives. Um, but these are all examples of how food systems transformation happens. So through this report, we brought these two together and we analyzed through true cost accounting methodologies, the beacons of hope to say what positive impacts are we seeing? Because as you rightly point out in the introduction, there's so many hidden costs to the food system and those include the negative costs like diabetes and um, water pollution and greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and they also include hidden positive um, benefits, um, such as social cohesion, gender empowerment, um, you know, sort of uh, soil carbon capture, etc. So this report reveals a lot of those positive benefits through these beacons of hope. It's an extremely exciting initiative. And there are a number of examples there where you can really see these positive impacts come to life. And um, uh, very serendipitously, not only did Pavan and I work together on developing um, what is the most comprehensive and holistic true cost accounting framework called TEAB AgriFood, but we also have the privilege and pleasure of working together um, on one of the case studies um, in Andhra Pradesh. And um, Pavan has worked um, very deeply on that so he can speak more to the positive impact specifically in Andhra Pradesh. Right. The example that Ruth brings up is 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 actually uh, really heartwarming because it's it's about a community-based uh, project in the state of Andhra Pradesh in India, as she mentioned, and uh, it's one which was begun by a, a retired civil servant, uh, a gentleman known as Vijay Thalam, and 
a large community that he had worked with before in his days in the government service. He was the chief secretary of the state. And this community was basically uh, women who were part of the self-help groups for microfinance promotion in Andhra Pradesh. And together they created the, fr the framework and the infrastructure for a new model of agriculture, which has basically low impacts on nature and high dependency on nature as against the, the sort of conventional farming model, which is used most parts of the world where there are high negative impacts on nature and hardly any dependency because you're using uh, manufactured chemical inputs in terms of pesticides and fertilizers and, and irrigation and so on. So this model of natural farming in Andhra Pradesh, as of now, after about five, six, six years now of, of being around, has more than 700,000 farmers, mainly women, who have actually committed to this kind of farming, have started it, and in some cases have 100% transitioned across to it. And um, they, over these last five years, have evidenced higher yields, lower you know, water usage, definitely lower disease, in other words, lower on-farm problems like kidney problems because of uh, chemical uh, pesticides uh, absorption into, into bodies, and uh, better off-farm health, so improvements in health on-farm and off-farm, and you know, higher yield, and of course, climate benefits and water benefits and soil benefits, which are patently obvious, and are being measured by a project that my team and I are just uh, are working on. But what is really fascinating about, about this is that the farmers truly understand that this is about health, the health of their bodies, the health of the, of the planet, and also the health of the, of the local economy, because they have demonstrated over these last five years that there is higher yield achieved as a result of this, higher and sustainable yields. And by the way, this is not just about any one crop. They have achieved higher yield in all of the eight strains of rice that are grown in Andhra Pradesh, higher yield in their largest crop, which is actually groundnuts peanuts, as we call it, uh, high yield in vegetables and in cash crops like chili, for instance, where the yields are almost 80% higher on average based on our measurements, on our crop cutting exp experiments. And of course, high yields in fruit, which, you know, Andhra Pradesh is a great supplier of, of mangoes and, and pomegranates and so on. So it's a remarkable, now, what does higher yield mean? Higher yield in the hands of poor farmers, and by the way, these 700,000 farmers all the 6 million that are in Andhra Pradesh, are part of a group of more than a billion farmers who are what we call smallholders. In other words, land area per farmer less than two hectares, right? Higher yield in the hands of a poor farmer is a solution to poverty. It's a solution to sustainability because it's sustainable yield, therefore you're reducing climate impacts and actually sometimes getting climate uh, greenhouse gas carbon absorption as well lower water use, which means likelihood of, of more sustainable and, and, and farming and evidence in the higher yields. And, and of course, better health, which means less cost to the exchequer um, and a huge saving in cost to the exchequer because of this fertilizer and pesticide subsidies that especially fertilizer subsidies for urea that are prevalent in, in India, including- Excellent. You know, so Excellent. it's an amazing, it's a, it's a plus, 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 plus kind of example. Now that plus, 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 plus kind of example, both, both, both you, Pavan and Ruth, you, you're embracing um, accounting methodologies that are comprehensive, that are looking both at the, at the hidden costs, the hidden benefits. Give us a little bit of insight into the current gap uh, of the, the state of affairs of where we are with traditional accounting and what many people are using today. 
which doesn't take account of these costs, these hidden costs or hidden benefits, um, and where you'd like to go, where, where your methodologies have you right now and where you think things should move to? What's that gap look like? Maybe I can I can start with a pedestrian view because I'm not an economist. Okay. <laughs> and then Pavan can make it more expert. <laughs> um, in working on teabag food, this holistic comprehensive framework that the Global Alliance um, supported along with the European Commission and in partnership with UN Environment, um, I have always thought of it like a massive Excel spreadsheet <laughs> where, you know, you've got the value chain across the top. So you've got production, processing, consumption, waste is included in there as well. And then along the other axis, you've got all the impacts and externalities, as we call them, the hidden costs um, and impacts. So that includes all the environmental impacts and costs that includes social, that includes cultural health. Etc. So, and that that is both on the positive and the negative side. And if you look at this entire Excel spreadsheet and evaluate a farm or a business, then you can see all of those impacts and externalities. Um, to date, we've sort of been in the upper left-hand corner. So, production and environment. Right, we're pretty good at that. We we can look at a farm and say these are the impacts on water, on air etc. We're not so great on the consumption side, even the processing side. We're not so great when we go down into those other impacts, like the social impacts or the, the health impacts. Um, and so by having this truly comprehensive and holistic framework, we can see more. Everything is made visible. And therefore, policymakers, corporate CEOs, you know, farm workers can make better decisions about the way they want to move forward taking into account that we need to work across multiple objectives. Um, so you mentioned this, Alberto, and, and Pavan talked about this as well. We need to deal with climate change. We need to deal with poverty. We need to deal with nutrition. We need to deal with rising gender inequalities. We need to deal with all of these things. These are all the sustainable development goals and, and food systems and by association, these sorts of frameworks to help us deal with food systems become the most amazing um, sort of transition pathway to deal with all those multiple issues. So that's my pedestrian way of describing it. I'll let, let Pavan put a fighter. That sounds much better than what I would expect a pedestrian explanation to be. So Yeah, Ruth, well done. So that is a really well-captured description of what's the right way forward. And I'll just maybe in, in, with, uh, to explain like what is the wrong way, which is what we've been stuck with for a long time, just mention that you know, there, there has been uh, a general tendency, not just in food systems, I would say generally in society, to ignore externalities. Because especially in the post-war era, construction and getting the economy back on its, on its feet was clearly a priority in the post-war period. You couldn't drive the economy by just measuring GDP in terms of the amount of stuff that you can hurl at your enemy. Uh, you had to do real construction and real reconstruction and so on. So there's kind of a, a, a historical genesis to this focus on GDP and focus on production only and, and productivity, therefore, and recogni recognizing resource scarcities, including, by the way, human resources, um, you know, a lot of the, 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 the deaths that took place in, in the two wars, recognizing the human capital, the people resources that are scarce, 
and that you do need them for farming and get people getting people back to farms. There was a sort of policy focus on per hectare productivity, as in making sure that land produced as much as it could and that people produced as much as they could. So there was a kind of genesis to it, and you can understand where it came from, right? There was a historical genesis to it. But having said that, you can't keep hanging on to history 70 years after it's finished, right? There is no world war anymore, right? There's, that was in, in the 40s. So we need to recognize that there are bigger, bigger things that have beset us, and not least climate change, water scarcity, and all of the planetary boundaries. There are bigger concerns that we have, which is that despite the last 70 years post-war and all the developed, so-called development effort that's been taken, equity and gender equity in particular has simply not been focused on. And these are absolutely essential components of successful community-based farming systems. And the almost 1.1 billion people I mentioned uh, who are uh, smallholder farmers. So if you want to improve the lives of these people, and many of them are, I would say, poor, not in terms of you know, their culture or, or in terms of their nature. And they are very generous human beings. And I've met so many of them. So I would say they're not poor. I would say that as, as human beings, I consider them richer than I am. But in terms of cash flows and in terms of incomes, for sure, they are poor. So what do you do about that? How do you ensure enough income in their hands? And I think this is the, the challenge is that unless we change the lens with which we evaluate agriculture and stop thinking of it in terms of, oh, how many how many quintals of rice is that one farmer producing? Oh, that's not good enough because, you know, my, my chemically uh, fertilized and chemically uh, 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 pesticide-enhanced uh, uh, farm produces more than that. Yes, sure, it will. But the point is it produces negative externalities, produces health costs. You are getting, you know, because of the, the nature of the pesticides and, and chemicals fertilizer you're using, you are getting declines in soil fertility, so the natural capital is declining. Health is declining. That means human capital is declining. People are losing their jobs because people's work is being replaced by mechanized, uh, mechanized uh, 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 agriculture. Therefore, social capital is declining. So you're seeing declines in human, social, and natural capital. But yes, you're getting an increase in produced capital. Why is that a good idea? Back to Ruth's spreadsheet, so to speak, right? So look at the value chain and look at the different kinds of capital that you are impacting as a result of your agriculture. And if you're looking at plus, 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 then you're good, that's right, that, that's what it should be. But if you're not, then you've got a problem. And that's what the problem is, that this narrow lens, this sort of limited lens, a single, and you know, in addition to the per hectare productivity, the tendency is to look at single crops. Now, if I look at this, the farms I talked about in Andhra Pradesh, they are multi-cropping and they are sequential cropping. They are not just producing throughout the year, but you will see rows and rows of basically, you will see, at the low level, you will see sort of, you know, black beans and 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 uh, uh, and and red beans, and then slightly higher than that, you'll see rows of chili, and then behind that, you'll see some maize growing, and then behind that, you'll see fruit trees, and you'll see constant mulching and constant cropping based on the seasons, all crops being grown simultaneously. Now, how does single crop per hectare productivity work in that kind of context? It's impossible, right? So you need to realize that the reality of natural farming is much more complex than you can ever measure. And I'm merely only talking so far about the, the physical dimension of it. But then what about the cultural dimension? What about the social dimension? What about the human dimension? What about the higher income in the hands of the poor farmers? What about the collaboration that you've created? What about the knowledge exchange that you've created between and within the farm community? 
if you calculate all of those impacts, you then find that the weighing scales which you thought were tilted against natural farming are in fact hugely in favor of natural farming because of all the other benefits that they deliver. That's the difference. That's the big difference between the old system and the new system. Very thought-provoking. Now, if we're looking to change the lens through which we see these things, and we're looking to identify these these hidden negative externalities, hidden positive externalities, um, how how adequate is the the current embrace of these new accounting methodologies from, say, the large corporate world? And also, if we're looking at policymakers and governments who might be looking at, say, corrective pricing to to adequately price for for, for these externalities, how satisfied are both of you of the progress that's being made so far um, in embracing these new accounting methodologies? Well, from my perspective, Alberto, I think that um, you know it, it's an encouraging um, response and also a frustrated response um, from from my vantage point. I think that on the encouraging side, um, you know, it is starting to take root in in the consciousness of those that um, we look to to pick up these tools. Uh, As an example, I was very involved in the UN Food System Summit. And, you know, this is one of the um, primary tools that people were looking to. There's a huge number of organizations coming together around true cost accounting, true value accounting. Um, You know, there was a a coalition that started to form around this, more and more organizations were joining. That's fantastic and very encouraging. Um, I believe that holistic evaluation tools are in use in more than 80 countries, also incredibly encouraging. Um, There are some countries Um, particularly in the context of the UN Food System Summit, that were saying very positive things about wanting to build true cost accounting into their national pathways. Again, very encouraging. Um, You know, on the the frustrating side, I think it's just not happening fast enough or broadly enough. Um, I think, you know, again, my perspective, and I believe Pavan's perspective, other people's perspective, is that this is one of the most powerful tools and leverage points And so given that, and given the crises we face, we have to move faster. We have to start connecting agendas. As an example, um, we're doing work on looking at countries and DCs related to the Paris Agreement. So the nationally determined contributions that countries have committed to vis-a-vis the Paris Agreement and our climate goals. Very, very few of them have built in anything to do with food systems (laughs) and certainly not to do with true cost accounting. That has to change. We need countries to step up and recognize the importance of food system to the climate agenda, to make the connections between food, climate, nature, equality, et cetera, and to um, fast track, basically, um, the ways to get to transformation. Um, There's a disconnect there. And I think that's the disconnect we've got to try to deal with because, um, you know, we know the world is burning. There are floods, there are fires. Um, glaciers are melting. I mean, we, we all know the stats. Given that, we really have to move rapidly and we need to encourage major transformation. And that's not happening. Yeah. I would echo what um, Ruth has said and, and um, underline that, you know, what we have achieved, and let's be positive, what we have achieved, Ruth, and thanks to you and, and the Global Alliance, actually, it's really well achieved, is some amazing leadership examples and the beacons of hope, including the example in Andhra Pradesh that I briefly described, clearly are good examples of leadership. And uh, 
Among those examples of leadership, of course, is the project in Andhra Pradesh that I, I briefly described. And I think this has been thanks to the uh, leadership and uh, support proof that you and the Global Alliance for the Future of Food have provided. So we have some amazing examples now. The question is, how quickly can we replicate them, which means reproduce what happens in Andhra Pradesh in India and other states in India, and maybe then in Kenya and maybe then in Indonesia and so on. And how quickly can we scale it? I mean, clearly, we are seeing an evidence of local scale within Andhra Pradesh to have gone from zero to 700,000 farmers in, in five and a half, six years is, is amazing. And, you know, their objectives are to achieve, you know, a complete transformation of that state, which means six million farmers. So clearly, local scaling is possible. The question is, can we get global scaling to happen? Can this happen in the other countries as well? So I think there's still questions uh, in terms of, you know, what's stopping that? What are the policies? Uh, the incentives and the disincentives, or if you like, the perverse incentives that are stopping this from happening. And that's really what needs to be explored. And I will say this on the positive side as well, is that the approach for multi-capitals thinking is very easily alignable with the multi-SDGs. So when you've calculated impacts in capital terms, you can also express it in SDG terms. And indeed, if you look at food systems, there are many SDGs involved. It's not just SDG 2, which is about sustainable food, but it's also SDG 3, which is about human health. And clearly, as I mentioned earlier, it's about SDG 1, which is poverty. And undoubtedly, it's about SDG 5, which is about gender equity and, you know, about education, SDG 4. And then oh, clearly about SDG 6, which is water, because you're saving half of it. And undoubtedly, because of SDG, because of the climate savings, SDG 13, and so on and so on and so on. So the ability to achieve the SDGs is so closely and connected with so many of the SDGs connected to this whole food systems challenge that I just am surprised that this is not blindingly obvious to every policymaker that they should be focusing right here in order to achieve the SDGs. Yeah. yeah. Now we have, from the, from the time we're going to be airing this episode, we have about a week until the launch of COP26. I'd love to get your take individually of what you would like to see achieved at that COP26 gathering? Well, I would like number one to see agendas connected. We have to connect the climate, the nature and the food agendas, not to mention the agendas around gender equality, uh, et cetera. So we, we've got to start seeing these as systems that are mutually reinforcing in good ways and bad ways. Number one. Number two, I would really like to see countries take seriously the importance of food systems to the climate agenda and to build those explicitly into their NDCs. Uh, food systems are a brilliant pathway to the future, both in terms of being able to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and mitigate climate impacts by getting away from industrialized agriculture that is highly dependent on fossil fuels, <laughs> and to move towards other models of food systems like Andhra Pradesh, where those systems are based on agroecology and actually support the planet and people in trying to mitigate climate effects and move into a more stable future um, by sequestering soil, by increasing biodiversity, etc. So I think this is so central to the climate agenda, and yet it's still absent from the debate and certainly from the formal commitments. Yeah, and and where Ruth closes is where I'll emphasize my my uh, aspiration, my my hope for the climate COP COP twenty six is um, 
I have a, a chart in my office here in, in Glon, uh, which is basically right in front of me when I sit at work. And you can see why it is so nagging me that here is a calculation which shows that between 44 and 57% of all greenhouse gas emissions basically come from the global food system if you account for it on a value chain basis. And means if you account for the, the forests that were lost to create the space to grow the beef and the soya and the palm oil that was then in turn transported thousands of miles um, from wherever it was grown. And, you know, there's emissions in the deforestation, there's emissions in the agriculture, there's emissions in the transportation and the packaging and God forbid, the waste, one third of the food that is produced is wasted, right? This is the elephant in the drawing room of climate change. It's about food systems. Just think holistically, think, take a systems approach to this. So if this realization could dawn at this COP, I mean, I think that would be, to me, hallelujah, it would be one hell of a moment. Yeah. I always ask my guests for a key takeaway uh, before we part ways and, and close the episode. What would be that key takeaway you'd like to share with our audience before we wrap up the show today? I would, I would say, look, the key takeaway is this, that food systems are much more and much bigger than than just the official uh you know 3% of the economy that that they pretend to be <laughs> they're huge they are absolutely embedded in every aspect of our life and our existence but we will only understand that if we start measuring them properly which means measuring them holistically which means following true cost accounting so let's embrace that approach it is the way forward let's embrace that and recognize that Food systems are the giant. They are the elephant in this drawing room, no matter which way you look at it, whether it's human health or poverty or climate change. And I think my key takeaway would be that um, as human beings, we so often view things with blinders on. We have a very narrow, siloed way of looking at issues and at solutions. And I think what we've learned is we have to broaden that frame. We need to start seeing the whole picture. We need to see systems. Otherwise, we are gonna walk down a path that has unintended consequences, which has happened time and time again in our human history. Um, so let's learn from that. <laughs> let's be adaptive, responsive human beings and recognize that unless we're looking at a whole system and we're looking at the multiple impacts um, we are not going to get to the solutions that we need to to move us forward. I love it. So let's see how things play out in a week's time at COP26. And uh, in the meantime, a big heartfelt thanks to both of you for joining me and joining us on the Do One Better podcast today. You've been listening to Ruth Richardson, Executive Director of the Global Alliance for the Future of Food, and Pavan Sukdev who is both president of WWF International and also CEO of GIST Impact. Thank you both ever so much. It's been wonderful speaking with you today. Thanks, Alberto, and great to talk to you again, Pavan. Thanks, guys. All the best. Perfect. That's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in to the Do One Better podcast. As always, for more information about this episode and almost 150 other interviews with remarkable folks, just visit our website at lij.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already. Please share widely with your friends, family, and colleagues. And do leave us a review and a rating if you enjoy the show. Thanks ever so much, and I'll catch you next week.